So, if you have a Bible, or if you want to take your phone and get to your app, you can take your Bible and open it, and we will go to Genesis 18, which is where we're going to start and maybe finish today. Um, This is a little bit longer of a sermon. My, My plan is that when I wrap this up, it will be right at the stroke of midnight to just kind of have that cool timing with New Year's Eve thing. So, um, so hang tight. Uh, also, I need to, I do, and Andrew referenced it, since our children are with us this morning, I wanted to take advantage of that, welcome them in here. Um, and so I thought I'd spice things up a little bit by creating a Cross of Grace bingo game for today's sermon. So, if you want one of these, I have enough for children and adults. I don't know if I have enough prizes for adults, so um, we'll keep the prizes for kids. But I'm just going to kind of like float these two this way. And if you want to take one, go for it and knock yourself out. The uh, intent here is as you hear that word or phrase in today's sermon, you would cross off that square. And when you have a bingo diagonally, horizontally or vertically, you would say, no, you would say amen, okay? Because there haven't been enough amens recently here. And so if you get a bingo, you need to say amen. And if you say amen, and then after the sermon, kids, if you come up here and show me that bingo sheet there, I have a box of candy here that you will get to reach into and uh, take a piece of candy. And uh, for those of you that are in our youth ministry, don't worry, there will be more for you later, okay? So, that's, that's keep you guys engaged. If you need your parents' help, go ahead. Parents, if you need your kids' help, um, that's fine as well. All right. Well, <clears throat> let's get into it. Let's, uh, let's start, though. Let's start by, by getting our obligatory Tolkien reference out of the way. Okay? And I'm going to start right from page one of Tolkien's The Hobbit, which is my favorite book. Um, This one's actually my kid's old copy because mine fell apart many, many decades ago. Here's how Tolkien starts The Hobbit. In a hole in a ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. I love Tolkien. You know that if you've heard me preach before, talk to me for any amount of time. And I love the details in how he describes things. And in the Lord of the Rings movie, as it gets, shows the, the Hobbit whole, I love the attention to detail. And in fact, if you see that, you can notice the little sign on the bottom corner. And yes, I realize that this particular image is from the Fellowship of the Ring and not the Hobbit, so back off, nerds, for a second here. Of course, I acknowledge that this sign would not have been present in the Hobbit and was put up in anticipation of Bilbo's 111st birthday, but bear with me on this, okay? But maybe it would help if you just zoomed in on that sign for a second. You see that there? What a lovely sense of comfort and welcome that the sign just absolutely deters and destroys. Well, you know the story, perhaps, in The Hobbit, um, by ones and twos and finally threes with Biffer, Bofer, and Bomber, the dwarves and the wizard Gandalf arrive at Bilbo's hole unexpectedly to plan a grand adventure. 
and Bilbo is caught completely unaware. But once they are all there, Gandalf exclaims and says this, Now we are all here, quite a merry gathering. I hope there is something left for the latecomers to eat and drink. What's that? Tea? No, thank you. A little red wine, I think, for me. And for me, said Thorin. And raspberry jam and apple tart, said Biffer. And mince pies and cheese, said Bofer. And pork pie and salad, said Bomber. And more cakes and ale and coffee, if you don't mind, called the other dwarves through the door. Put on a few eggs. There's a good fellow. Gandalf called after him as the hobbit stumped off to the pantries. And just bring out the cold chicken and the pickles. Seems to know as much about the inside of my larders as I do myself, thought Mr. Baggins, who was feeling positively flummoxed and was beginning to wonder whether a most wretched adventure had not come right into his house. By the time he had got all the bottles and dishes and knives and forks and glasses and plates and spoons and things piled up in big trays, he was getting very hot and red in the face and annoyed. Confusticate and be bother these dwarves, he said aloud. Why don't they come and lend a hand? Now, I imagine that the description of poor Bilbo there, after all this enforced hospitality, may be somewhat similar to many of us when we even hear the word hospitality. Very hot and red in the face and annoyed or positively flummoxed. Hospitality. Well, don't freak out too much. We are going to visit the spiritual discipline of hospitality this morning. One helpful definition of hospitality is this: a local, or sorry, a social process by which the status of someone who is an outsider is changed from stranger to guest. I like that one. And speaking as an introvert myself, I want to attempt to redeem this practice of hospitality as a critical part of what God has called us, specifically Cross of Grace Church, to be hospitable. But not just the church, you as families and as individuals, as people, be hospitable. The Sunday after Christmas and before the New Year is when preachers usually talk about Bible reading and prayer, since you are all thinking about it, or should be thinking about it, or perhaps you're trying to avoid thinking about it, you're trying to think about those New Year's resolutions. Those are good disciplines, and as I said before, you should go for it. But hopefully in another 30 minutes or so, probably a little bit longer, after I've added another discipline to your to-do list, you won't be very hot and red in the face and annoyed. Although I will admit that a few of my sermons have led some to be positively flummoxed. And so let me pray that that doesn't happen. Father, we thank you that you are a hospitable God, that you have changed us through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, from strangers and even enemies to not just guests, but children who are welcome at your table and have a home. Would you help that? truth sink deep into our hearts and transform our lives this morning as we think and study about it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start in an unusual place with part one of this sermon, Genesis chapter 18. You can turn there, Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to look at a strange story in the Old Testament. 
Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Here's what God's word says. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, that's an interesting story, isn't it? As you might sense, there are some pretty significant questions that should be maybe rattling around in your brain as you think about some of the the math of this passage here. Let me just list a few of them there. Uh, Verse 1, the Lord, singular, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham. But then, verse 2, what does he see? Three men. So... Okay, if there are three men in verse 2, why does Abraham in verse 3 address them with the singular title of Lord, which is actually Adonai, it's lowercase there, not the all caps. And so there's a different word for Lord there, but it's still singular. So he's addressing a group of three, it seems, as Lord. Interesting. How does Abraham even recognize their importance? Like, obviously, there is something that he recognizes here. He's bowing. He's he's offering all kinds of things. He's calling them Lord. He's saying that he is their servant. How does he recognize them? Is there some halo effect going on here that distinguishes them? And, And perhaps one of the more intriguing questions of this passage is how in the world does Abraham not hear it from Sarah when he gives her the quick command and what seems to be a bit of mansplaining regarding how to make a cake? Did you notice that? He runs in, Sarah, quick, three sayas of flour, knead it, that's what you're going to want to do, and bake it and make some cakes. And um, he gives her the measurements, he gives her the instructions, he gives her a call to urgency. Husbands, let me just speak a word to you directly here. You might not want to make this the model part of Abraham's hospitality, okay? This would not go over so well in my home. Marianne is the baker and is much more skilled at it than I am. Telling her how to bake does not result in deep moments of affection and marital bliss in our house. And this perhaps explains why Abraham rushes to go grill the meat, Did you notice that? (laughs) Like, know your lanes, husband, okay? Know your lanes. Well, theologians and Bible scholars have spilt a lot of ink trying to explain the intricacies of this interaction. And I'm not talking about the mansplaining. I'm talking about the identity of the visitors here. Who uh, is our, our is this? Who's this? The visitor's identity is not simple to figure out. In fact, it gets even more complicated if you jump to the end of chapter 18, verse 33, and into the beginning of chapter 19. 
Look at that. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, singular, Yahweh, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So the three men, it seems, one is the Lord, and two are angels, I think, maybe. What's going on here, right? So you have the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who no one can look upon and live, and two angels who visit Abraham. The two angels continue the route as they head to Abraham's nephew's place for really a delightful, heartwarming episode in chapter 19, if you want to read that at home. God says to Moses later on in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And yet, Exodus 18, Yahweh visits Abraham. So what's going on here? Abraham seems to see Yahweh's face and give him something to eat. How can this be? Well, one option that some have landed on is to take a verse like Colossians chapter 1.15 that says Jesus is the image of the invisible God and think that through. In other words, Yahweh is seen, according to Colossians 1, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So, Maybe Genesis 18 is an instance of the pre-incarnate Jesus making an appearance in the Old Testament. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Well, it's one option, but it's not necessarily definitive. Don't build out too much of your personal theology on that. It's a possibility, but it's not necessarily definitive. Others like to do the math in the, in the, in the passage, 3 and 1, and cry out, That's the Trinity. That is the Trinity right there. That's another option. But again, it's not necessarily definitive, and it seems to have maybe a couple potential problems. This episode here is some form of an appearance of God, what we call a theophany, an appearance of God. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, in some mysterious way, shows up at Abraham's tent. And it won't be the only time in the Old Testament. It also wasn't the only episode in ancient religions. The Greek god Zeus, or the Roman uh, parallel Jupiter, was known as the patron of strangers. And Zeus or Jupiter would often visit humans secretly. You can look up the tale of Bacchus and Philemon for one particular famous episode that seems like it might almost be drawn from what happened in Genesis 18, written much earlier. But I'm not going to dwell on the theological brouhaha that can erupt over such a passage. I want you to notice something easily missed in all the theophonic hullabaloo of this passage. Here's what I want you to see. Abraham is super hospitable, right? He's really, really hospitable. In fact, he's so over-the-top hospitable in this passage that one commentator, Bruce Waltke, calls Abraham the consummate host, calls him a model of hospitality. And in fact, Jewish scholars with their Hebrew Bibles, which include Genesis 18, have continued this understanding of Abraham's hospitality as they comment on this passage. Abraham is a model of hospitality, the consummate host, and well Well, he should be called that, I think, right? I mean, look at what he does in this passage. When he saw them, he ran. He ran. And this is in the heat of the day when he's likely napping. He bowed himself to the earth. 
he went quickly and said quick, and then quickly got the calf. Like, quick, quick, quick. Boom, boom. Abraham ran to get the calf. Grand patriarchal old men like Abraham did not run in his day, except when an extreme hospitality was called for. And here, Abraham hurries, runs quickly, ran, quick, he says to Sarah. He's downright Bilboish in his energetic hospitality here. He's bouncing quickly between Sarah, the calf, and the young man, and the three men, and the tree. He's never, though, confusticated or be bothered, if you newest. Perhaps the most striking piece of Abraham's hospitality here is his ability to under-promise and over-deliver. Here's what he promised to the three men, Lord, whoever. Here's what he promised. A little water to wash your feet and a morsel, a morsel of bread. That's his promise. That's what I got for you guys. A little water, a morsel of bread. But then he brings them a meal fit for royalty, right? Freshly baked cakes, courtesy of Sarah. Curds and milk, a delicacy in that day. And a tender and good calf that he has butchered and roasted. This is not the typical lunch in Canaan of that day. And all of this, all of this is spontaneous. It's done during the heat of the day, in verse 1 it says, when old Abraham was likely interrupted from his afternoon nap by unexpected visitors. The consummate host here operates extemporaneously. So, let's just ask the question then. If Abraham is, according to Waltke and a long Jewish tradition, the model of hospitality, how are you doing in this discipline? Well, perhaps before we get into that arena of weighty conviction, it might be good to take a step back. So let's talk about part two, the stark reality of Minnesota winters. Post-Christmas Minnesota is no longer the most wonderful time of the year. We have hit the hard times. It gets dark at 4.30 p.m. It doesn't get light until 7.30 a.m. Some of you are in the office or workplace. The entire time it's light outside, you never see the sun until, like, March. Most years we don't see our lawns from, like, mid-November until April. So for any of you about to undergo your first Minnesota winter, you picked an easy one so far. Furthermore, spring break is, sorry to say it, months away. The Vikings are not looking so good. Wow, that was unplanned. <laughs> I'm a Lions fan, and last night was rough for the three or four of us in here that was a Lions fan as well, so we share some pain even though we're going to the playoffs. Um, the Vikings aren't looking so hot. We all gained some weight over the last month. It's dark outside. It's cold. There's snow on the ground finally. New Year's is a completely lame holiday, right? Like, this is a dumb holiday. Stay up late with a bunch of crazy people. No, nobody would... Nobody likes that holiday that much. So what do we do about this? What do we do about this? In, in Minnesota, or in the upper Midwest, we essentially hibernate. We hibernate. Hibernation means that an animal spends the winter in a dormant state. And when used to describe a human being, dormant means remaining inactive or indoors for an extended period of time. 
Now, I won't call you out specifically on this with some REI-like tagline about opting outside, but we all know this describes our plans for the next three months. Hunker down, drink lots of um, cocoa, binge watch stuff, and just try to survive. Our goal becomes essentially to survive the next three months with enough life to venture out of our holes in April, hear a bird or two, squint at the sun, and live again, right? Of course, we might start off this week with goals of exercise and activity, but that's happened before. We've tried that. Give it a week or two, and we'll be back in our dens. Now, of course, you Scandinavians have tried to romanticize this idea with what the Danes call huga. That is how you pronounce that word. I looked it up multiple times. And it essentially means a state of comfort or coziness. And really, it's just a glorified way to talk about Midwestern hibernation. Because during this time, we eat a lot of comfort food, right? It's what you Minnesotans call hot dish and what we Michiganders call casserole. I don't know why it's called hot dish here. It makes sense. It's very descriptive. Um, It's quite delicious, I think, but that's one of the things. You eat a lot of soup and bread during this time. Bread consumption tends to skyrocket. Soup sales are off the charts once it starts snowing. You you find a lot of, uh, of these things around, too, a lot of blankets, In fact, I was trying to do the calculation in my house, and I think we have a 7 to 1 ratio of humans, or blankets to humans, in our just in our living room. This is not including the bedrooms. Like, there's just blankets everywhere. Every, like, everywhere. And if you have cat allergies, you might want to stay away from this. I'll put it over here, Emily, uh, for your sake. I'm amazed how people get excited about receiving a blanket at Christmas when they already have, like, seven of them. I saw this recently at a gift exchange where a relatively simple blanket nearly caused grown women to come to blows as it was repeatedly stolen with unchecked aggression during a white elephant exchange. Be careful with the blankets. We also put on sweaters and slippers a lot. We love our fireplaces, or if we don't have a fireplace, we love our videos of fireplaces. And, of course, we love... Napping. Lots and lots of napping. And there's where I can connect it back to old Abraham at his tent door. Because if you lived in a hot climate instead of Minnesota, like the deserts of the Middle East, there would be no harsh winter like we have to survive here. Instead, the middle of the day was brutally hot and resulted in nap time. Things slow down in the tropics or in the desert around midday, early morning, late evening, bustling. People are at the market early, early. Like you go to the Philippines and like five o'clock, people are just all up and moving around. But noon is for napping. And for some animals, this form of hibernation, dormant during the heat, is actually called estivation. Estivation is characterized by inact. Got another one? All right characterized by inactivity and a lower metabolic rate that is entered in response to high temperature. So it's kind of the opposite of hibernation, but it's actually true for me when the weather gets above 80 degrees. I don't think I'm alone in that. Chad, you and I are the same. We just kind of we, we go dormant when it gets hot. And that's what would have been true for Abraham. He was likely dozing by his tent door, just trying to survive the heat of the day. 
I'm nearly 50, and I've fully embraced the incredible joy and increasing necessity of resting my eyes a bit after lunch. It's a glorious state of huga. I'm going to shut down for a while. I'll get back to my work. Just let me rest for a few minutes so I can survive this difficult time. And Abraham's midday nap is somewhat similar in some way, perhaps, to Midwestern winter hibernation. We're all just trying to make it through an uncomfortable time. But, but, what if, what if God has other intentions? And what if he has the audacity to interrupt our huga? He certainly did for Abraham and for Sarah. What if he might even have a missional purpose to our miserable winters here in Minnesota? So let's move to part three. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. The author of Hebrews, unknown, writes this after many chapters of telling about the glories of Christ. The author of Hebrews says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me. Now, if I was doing a thoroughly proper expository sermon on Hebrews 13, I'd spend a lot more time looking at these commands. But since this sermon is obviously a little bit different in its organization, let me just run through the commands quickly here. First, the author calls the church to let brotherly love continue. Verse 1. In other words, keep on showing familial Love to one another in the church. Care for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Love one another. But there's more to this passage, as you see. And the subcommands of verses 2 through 5 may function in a couple different ways connected to that first brotherly love command. They may function as a disclaimer, saying there's actually more here than just brotherly love. And they may also function as a, a, an explanation. Here's how to obey this command. See, here's what would happen. If the author of Hebrews had said simply, let brotherly love continue, there would be a danger for us as a church. Um, We would maybe hear that command, and then we would kind of look around the room on a Sunday morning, and we would find the people we would really enjoy, and we would say, we would then try to be nice to them. That's our maybe default mode, and it's almost too easy. It's really easy to be hospitable or nice to people you know well and get along with great. That's why most of us talk to the same people every Sunday morning. Author Tanner Swanson posted an article last week called Love Despite Difference, The Real Call of One Anothering. And here's the quote that kind of slapped me upside the face in a really good, sanctifying way. She says, When we do not ask God to define one another for us, We slip into choosing those people for ourselves. 
And the people we choose tend to be the people we like. And the people we like tend to be like us. One another is not just for those you like. Hence, the next very important command in verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 13. The author says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Well, to whom? To your bowling league friends? No. To your discipleship group? Nope. To your brothers and sisters, mom and dad, children? Nope, not even them. To who? Strangers. Strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The author won't let the church off the hook here. Hospitality to strangers. That's a, that's a little harder, isn't it? It's a lot harder. It's difficult. But it might be exactly what God has intended for you in order to, A, care for that stranger, but also to speak to you and help you grow into him more and more. Now, how can I say that? Is that in the text here? Kind of, and I want to explain that. Look at this, the, the next phrase. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's a mind-boggling phrase, isn't it? Mind-boggling phrase. When we think of angels, we tend to think of beings in pretty dresses and halos and harps and golden wings, something like this, which uh, found its way into our house a while ago somehow, uh, without my approval. Um, this is, this is uh, originally it was Gabriel. We have taken to calling this angel Gabriella now. Um, I think it's more fitting. Um, this, this is not what the author of Hebrews is probably talking about here. In fact, this, this is probably not a biblically faithful angel in many different ways. You know, Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, thought they, they described them as men. And uh, if, if that person showed up at my door, I don't know what I would do. I'm not sure I would be overwhelmed with fear, um, necessarily. Maybe confusion, um, concern, wondering what day of was Halloween or something like that. But we'll come back to this idea of angels because it's going to be really important here. But there's the connection to Genesis 18. And it's not that, okay? But, but look at this. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers is not the only follow-up command. I want to just make note of the other ones too because they're important here. Next, the author says, remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are mistreated, verse 3. And it's so easy for us to forget about those who are disconnected from the body for reasons not necessarily their own. The churches to whom Hebrews was addressed in that day faced growing persecution from the Romans and would likely have had a few folk in prison or facing mistreatment for their faith in Jesus. This was people in their church that the author is talking about. So for the original recipients of this command... It wasn't prisoners that they didn't know. It wasn't stranger prisoners. It was mistreated prisoners who may have actually been their brothers and sisters. So, remember those who are in prison. Do we remember our persecuted brothers and sisters in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, North Korea, China, India? Even more, what, what do you do, what do we do to remember those who are unwillingly disconnected from our body? 
those who are sick, who are hospitalized, traveling for work for a few Sundays, who maybe are without transportation or called into work on a Sunday. What should we do with that? Remember them. Remember them. Send them a note. I missed you. Anything I can do for you? Can I help you get to church the next Sunday? Can I help you to re-engage our community? Remember those who are in prison and mistreated. Verse 4 then, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. The church is called to celebrate and showcase pure, honorable marriages where husbands love their wives, where wives respect their husbands, where spouses are radically faithful and committed to each other. Why? Why are they called to that? Because, of course, this reflects Christ to a watching world. But it's also a simple way to continue loving one another. Just like we can forget about those unwillingly disconnected from the body as we love one another, we can also sometimes forget that the one nearest to us, most of us, is our spouse. And in loving church members and showing hospitality to strangers, don't forget to honor and love your spouse. For further incentive, there's a sober reminder that God judges the unfaithful and the adulterous. He is a consuming fire, which the author had mentioned in chapter 12, verse 29, and there's a seriousness and a sobriety that we need to take when it comes to our marriages. And then the final command in this string. It seems disconnected, doesn't it? And here's another one that seems disconnected. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. If nothing else has got you at this point, this one probably hits home. Be content with what you have. It's not keep your life free from money, but from love of money. Not sure where I first heard this, but someone once said that the Bible calls us to love people and use money, and instead we often use people and love money. The antidote to this poison is contentment. Well, contentment with what? With what you have, the author says. What do you have? If you're in Christ, you have a God and a Savior who has promised that he will be with you. That's why the author quotes Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1 right there. I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. That's what you have. That's what you have. Contentment is a prerequisite to an uncontaminated love for one another and an ability to sacrificially show hospitality to strangers. Let me say that again. Contentment in Christ is a prerequisite to an uncontaminated love for one another and an ability to sacrificially show hospitality to strangers. In Christ, Christian, you have God. Be content with that and his love for you, and then let that overflow to others, including your brothers and sisters, brotherly love, including strangers, hospitality, including the neglected and the mistreated, and even, even your spouse. And the result of all this in verse 8 is so that we, the church, can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can mere mortals, as the NIV says, do to me. I long for that to be the atmosphere that people encounter when they encounter Cross of Grace Church. Confident assurance that our God is with us 
and we have no reason to fear, so we joyfully give ourselves to each other. It sounds so good, doesn't it? And it's God's plan here. Abraham knew the Lord was with him. Before chapter 18, in chapters 12, 15, and 17, Abraham was with God. There was covenant making and covenant remembrance as God and Abraham formed this relationship. Abraham knew the Lord was with him. And as Abraham understood that the Lord was with, would never leave him or forsake him, he was able to extend radical hospitality to visitors unexpected and even if they woke him up from his nap. Listen, it's, it's risky to show love like Hebrews 13 calls us to. We, we might be ridiculed. We might be rejected. But we will not be rejected by our God. He will be with us. He will not forsake us or leave us. He is our helper. What can mere mortals do to us? It's why we can show this kind of love. The picture painted by this passage is of a believing community of people, a church who finds such certain confidence in God's presence, they can't help but exercise radical hospitality. So, let's get back to that question. How are we doing? Does this describe us, Cross of Grace? Does it describe your community group? Does it describe your discipleship group? Does it describe your family, your table? Does it describe your own heart? And if you answer no to that in honesty, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, because all of this ethical call in Hebrews chapter eight or 13 is built on Hebrews 1 through 12, where the author of Hebrew it makes a grand case for the supremacy and beauty and glory and goodness of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, and not your own guilt-based effort, is what truly produces hospitable people. You want to be hospitable? Look to the one who was the consummate host, Jesus Christ. So, let me just draw out a few implications for us as a church by asking a series of questions and occasionally offering a few suggestions. Question number one, what would radical and prepared or ready hospitality look like for us? What would that look like for us as a church? Let's think about that in two categories here. First, let's think about that on the visitor on Sunday morning. We just like redid our website to try to, um, you know, be more outreach focused so that people can find us and come on a Sunday morning and Lord willing, as we encounter this next year, we'll see people coming in. Um, how do we, as a church, be hospitable to those strangers? They, they are stepping out. They're strangers, right? And they're probably a little nervous. If you've ever gone to a church for the first time and you don't know anybody in that church, it's kind of a freaky thing. It's, I mean, they do weird things in there, right? People long in that, that step out not to be forsaken. And Jesus, his final words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by God so that we won't ever be. He, God, will never forsake his people. But then, do we forsake people in how we treat visitors? How do we show them hospitality? I think one little goal should be that no one 
should have to sit alone on a Sunday morning. And some of you are kind of looking out the sides of your eyes, wondering if you need to shuffle seats here. We'll start this next Sunday, okay? <laughs> no one should have to sit alone on Sunday. No one should have to have a holiday feast alone. Community groups should be ready to invite new people, even spontaneously. Families should be ready to invite people, whether that's over to their house or whether that's just over to Culver's, if nowhere else. You don't have to have a roast in the oven every Sunday. Um, If you do, you can be hospitable to me. I would appreciate that. But just go get a pizza with someone. Be hospitable in that way. Hospitality doesn't have to be exuberant. You don't have to be Martha Stewart or Rachel Ray. It can be simple. And sometimes that's even better. Invite people into your reality, not just some cleaned up, sanitized version that you put on. No one forsaken, though. Now, some of us are introverts, so be gentle with us on this one. We do need some alone time from time to time. Don't push it too far, okay? Just personal thing here. Some of you agree with that. All right, that's the visitor on Sunday morning. What What about other strangers that we see day to day? Here's one suggestion for you. One very practical suggestion, and this is not a law that I am commanding to the church here. I'm not even a pastor, so I can't do that, right? Here's what I suggest to you. Frequent a place or a few places and be a regular there. Maybe that's a gas station where you go once a week, or a coffee shop where you go way more than you probably should, or maybe it's a lunch joint that you go to every Wednesday. Whatever it is, be a regular at places and go inside those places, Now, I know this is inconvenient to pay inside when pumping gas and paying at the pump and all that. You know, it's just easy. You don't want to put the cash or the credit card in front. It's just so confusing, isn't it, to have to pay before you get it? It'll add 10 minutes to your life, okay? You can do it. Um, Venture inside, Caribou, and, and just get over the extra time. You can figure it out. Go meet people. A few practical suggestions when you do this. First, first, if I may suggest this, um, smile at them, okay? Um, this, this I need to remind myself of because I am not a natural smiler, but people apparently appreciate it when you smile at them. It, it gives off a warm feeling, and people like that. People like people that smile, and they want to talk and find out why are you smiling? Why are you happy? It might actually lead to, if you're ready, conversation, okay? And here's what you can do. Just ask people questions, Here's my favorite question to ask people, especially in the service industry. It's this, I mean, you should pay money for this one right here because it will lead to cool stories. Ask people, gas station attendant, the barista, server at lunch, whoever it is, what's the strangest person you've ever served this week or this year? What's the strangest person? Because those people see some weird folk, right? And they want to talk about it. And you'll hear some stuff that you're like, whoa, I'm never getting out of my house again, which just blows up the whole piece. But, yeah, just ask them that question. It's a good one. It leads to conversation. Pro tip, though, never ask that to a tattoo artist. Um, I can tell you a story that will keep you away from asking that one. Just ask people. But what would radical hospitality look like for us? Second question, what would fiscal contentment produce in us? Fiscal contentment where we would show the world a better way, a happier way, a content way? What would honorable and pure marriages look like for us? Joyful families, deeply content in Jesus, loving each other, happy families, happy marriages. 
What would remembrance of the marginalized look like for us? No forgotten people. No forsaken people. Do you notice who hasn't been here for a while? And finally, what would continually, continual brotherly love look like for us? F.F. Bruce, who's not necessarily known for his poetic language, calls this imaginative sympathy. I love that term. Imagine, imaginative care, a great term from a commentator. If we truly understood the continual presence of God with us, how would it change our relationship to our brothers and sisters in the church as well as strangers we meet? Well, let's wrap this up. Part four, the final part, entertaining angels. I'd be remiss if I didn't come back to this in some measure because I'm a Bible nerd and I love phrases like this in the Bible and I love to think about them and study them and go down all kinds of rabbit trails. So here we go. Here's what the author said. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. That Abraham story that we looked at earlier isn't the only instance where God showed up unannounced. Joshua, Gideon faced similar scenarios as they encountered an angel of the Lord or a commander of the Lord's army. And when you read those stories, you realize that's something more than just an angel there. It's much more than, than, than Gabriella, right? That's not who showed up to Joshua or to Gideon. Who is it? God visits them. God has a message for them. So what do we do with that some have entertained angels unawares phrase? Because this could create a bit of paranoia for some of us, right? Uh, what if that kid that was selling wreaths last month was an angel? Um, and did I ignore a messenger from God when I hid in the back room and didn't answer the door? Should we take down the no soliciting sign on our door? Well, at the very least, the author does seem to be saying, you never know who is going to show up, okay? And for the record, my family will be keeping up our no soliciting sign because in our house we believe in a God who is bigger than a magnetic sign on our front door, and also we don't need another wreath. But that kid with a wagon full of wreaths might not be the incarnate Jesus, but, but, well, remember Matthew 25? Jesus portrays a scene of the final judgment. The king welcomes in his people who have given him food when he was hungry, who have given him drink when he was thirsty, who have welcomed him when he was a stranger, clothed him when he was naked, and visited him when he was sick and imprisoned. People ask, when did we ever do that for you? When did we ever welcome you when you were a stranger? And God, the king, says, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. When you extend hospitality to strangers, even during the months that we prefer to hibernate in, you're extending kindness to those made in the image of God, and God takes it seriously enough to say that you did it in some way for him. That's profound. But I think there's even more to this intriguing phrase. The word angel literally means messenger. It's not necessarily Gabriel, Michael, a heavenly host of supernatural beings, not Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life or Charles Ingalls and Highway to Heaven. Hebrews 13.3, in showing hospitality to strangers, some have entertained messengers of God unawares. A message from God can come to you as you practice hospitality to strangers. A ready and radical missional hospitality allows you to love as God has loved you, but it is also a way God may communicate to you. 
you might come away from a conversation saying, I was not expecting that. I didn't know I needed that. And God messages us sometimes through our hospitality and love of others. You never know who you're interacting with. You never know how God is using that. The mystery of how God wants to use this connection. Is it for you? Is it for them? Both, perhaps? I originally didn't want to make this a New Year's resolution sermon, but I might just end with it. Let's resolve to be the most radically hospitable church in the southwest suburbs. Let's resolve to be the most radically hospitable church the southwest suburbs has ever seen. Let's be risk-taking and creative in our hospitality. And we'll need some of you idea folk and extroverts to lead in this. But let's also be sure and steady and regular as we welcome folk on Sunday morning. We'll need more than the welcome team on this. They may lead the charge, but there's even a place for introverts like me on the hospitality mission. So join in. This is a job for all of us, church. No one should feel forsaken when they encounter a member of Cross of Grace Church. Why? Because people from Cross of Grace know that Christ was forsaken on the cross so that we won't be forsaken by God. And we here in this church should know, we should understand that our acceptance by God should push us out towards strangers. So remember that earlier definition of hospitality a social process by which the status of someone who is an outsider is changed from stranger to guest. And Lord willing, from an honored, welcomed guest to a member of the family. God has been and continues to be hospitable to us. We were far from God, estranged from him, but he, in Christ, has made us guests and family members. He's invited us to his table. And so let's resolve to be a church who finds such certain confidence in God's presence that we can't help but exercise radical hospitality. Let me pray. Father, once again, we must first thank you that you loved us. We love because you first loved us. We can show hospitality because you welcomed us. And so may our hearts be full of that first and foremost this morning. May we see Christ's outrageous hospitality and revel in it. But don't let us just keep that to ourselves, Lord. It is It is meant to be shared. It is meant to extend outward. Help us to practice hospitality to our brothers and sisters, sure, but also to strangers, because you welcomed us. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son.